Bibles to Psalm 19. This morning is the seventh sermon in a series this fall called Psalms of My Life. These are psalms that, that I love and have relied on and, and taught and have memorized in some cases down through the years of my walk with the Lord, and um, which I find to be very helpful in showing me God and the way that he wants me to live. I may show my age with my opening illustration this morning, but back when there was TV and then ads on TV, uh, you know, that you plug into the wall with the rabbit ears sticking up and all of that, there was also late night TV. And if you were watching TV late at night, you would see commercials for gizmos and gadgets. And they would advertise uh, the price in sort of large numbers set at a slight angle. You know, three payments of 19.99 or something like this. But one feature in these, these, at, these gizmos for your kitchen or gadgets for the yard would, it would be sometimes this, this little saying, and I'm sure you've heard it before, but wait, there's more. So in addition to, say, advertising the weed whacker for your yard, this patented weed whacker that you could only buy on TV, not available in stores, they'd throw in some garden shears that had a diamond blade, but wait, there's more. Or if they were advertising this juicer, which you couldn't buy in stores, only available for a limited time on TV, they would, they would say, but wait, there's more, and they'd throw in a set of kitchen knives formed with technology gleaned from the space shuttle trips into the outer regions. In this morning's psalm, we have a situation, if I can go from the mundane to the sublime, something like this, where God reveals something that's very good in, in his glory and creation. But wait, there's more. Because God's glory in his word is even greater. So the title of my sermon this morning is God's glory in the world and in the word. But this raises a problem to my thinking and something that some of you have wrestled with as well. Why doesn't everyone see the glory of God in creation? Why is it that some people look at the skies or the tree or study bacteria under a microscope and see not the glory of God, but the random acts of an impersonal nature? Relatedly, why is it that some people, when they look at the trees or the sky or the sun or the moon or the creatures crawling upon the earth and they don't give glory to the one true God but to some false God or an idol. I hope to return to these questions later in the sermon but one reason we come to incorrect conclusions about the glory of God in creation is that this glorious revelation of God is insufficient to tell us everything that we need to know. His beauty and glory in the word is provided as an interpretation of his beauty and glory in the world. And so we see the reason, at least initially, for our passage, which describes the glory of God in the world, and then leads to the glory of God in the word, because the second, more important glory is required as a key to interpret or understand the first. So the psalm begins, and we'll see it in a moment when we read it, by describing the glory of God in the world. But this leads you to require, in order to fully understand it, the glory in his word. Having this decoder key, if you will, will then send you back into the world, and you'll appreciate God's creation all the more. I call this the glory cycle. We see the glory of God in the world, it leads us to the glory of God in the word, and that in turn sends us back into the world to admire him all the more as we live and read and memorize and even sing Psalm 19. 
So let's give our attention then to the reading of God's holy word. Psalm 19, to the choir master. So we see that this was sung in the ancient church, to the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord or judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the glory in the world that we see, especially at the changing of the seasons, as the temperatures become cooler and the leaves on the trees change colors and fall and we see the light change in the skies and the evenings are different. The creatures scurry away into their rest. Thank you, Lord, for all of this glory. Thank you even more for the glory of your word, which helps us to understand your beautiful handiwork of creation and interprets it for us and explains what it really means. And thank you that knowing and seeing you in the word we are called forth into the world to serve you as your agents, as salt and light in a lost and dying world. We ask that you'd help us now as we consider this passage in Jesus' name. Amen. In my opening remarks, I made the point that our psalm is divided into two parts, and you can see that in verses 1 through 6. We have the glory of God in the world. It, it itself is divided into three sections. Verses 1 and 2 talks about the heavens declaring the glory of God, and it does these heavens or this firmament, the sky above, does this both day and night. Then it talks in verses 3 and 4 how the speech, this glory, this knowledge which is revealed is without words, and yet this wordless speech or this wordless knowledge goes through all the earth. There's nowhere where this speech is not found. And then in verses 5 and 6, David picks a particular element of creation, perhaps a crown jewel of creation, the sun itself, and describes the sun as a peculiar or special instance of the display of the glory of God. That's the glory of God in the world. And then in the second half of the psalm, in verses 7 through 11, is the glory of God in the Word. And then in verses 12 through 14, will be my third point, we're going to see the glory of God in the Gospel. Well, what is glory? First of all, I've been using this word several times this morning. Glory describes something usually that's bright or shining or radiant or particularly beautiful. When I say glory, I'm saying it's God's amazing power and God's person displayed so you can see it and experience it. 
God's glory is his amazing power, and even he himself displayed so that you can see it and experience it. And this psalm says that the glory of God is displayed in five areas. The heavens is the first area it's displayed. And then the sky above. My Bible has a footnote there. And it says the expanse or the firmament. So in terms of Hebrew sort of architecture or the the, the way that David understands the world, we have the sky And then the firmament is understood to be, in a sense, the stars that are moving through the sky. So the sky might be, if you will, the air, and the stars are sort of hanging in the air, so to speak. This is figurative speech. So God's glory is displayed both in the sky and in this firmament. And then it's displayed, thirdly, through the day, day to day, pours out speech, it says in verse 2. And then fourth, we see the glory of God displayed at night. Night by night reveals knowledge. So we have the sky and the firmament, we have day and night, and then finally we have the sun displays the glory of God. It's interesting that God has, has signed his work with a signature. He's put his thumbprint on the things that he's made. He didn't want to be anonymous. He created not because he had to, there was no compulsion in God, but he created because the things that he made, when it says in Genesis 1, God said, and it was, God spoke, and it was, and it was very good. He wanted the things that he made to bring him glory. Now, if you and I were to seek glory like this, we'd be rightly criticized as being arrogant or, you know, hogging fame or some other criticism. But when God brings glory to himself, he's doing what he must do. He's the one being in the universe who is designed to be glorified because he is the creator. Glory, in fact, is essential to God's nature. God would no sooner cease to be glorified, honored, and praised than he would cease to exist as God. So God wants himself to be known in the world. He's left traces. He's, I thought of it this way, if, if you can think of a, of a, of a, of a rug or, or of a coat or a blouse or even a tie or, or some fabric, and you take a close look at that fabric and you see it's very evenly woven throughout, but you look closer and that there is a, there is a shining silver thread woven through that particular piece of fabric. That's God's glory. And you're like, that wasn't an accident. Someone put that thread in there to bring glory to that garment. Now, as you and I look at creation, we're able to see, because of this this signature of God in the world, we can see that God exists. We can see that he's mighty and powerful. He wants us to know by the things that he's made, the mountains and the skies and the birds and the plants and the animals, the the waters and the current. He wants us to know that he's real. He wants us to understand that we didn't come here on our own. We didn't just pop into existence by a process of of natural forces. I'm not an accident. There's a reason I have questions about who I am and what I'm doing. Those questions didn't just kind of come into my mind on their own. God has implanted the knowledge of God through creation. In fact, my very questions, my very existence testifies to the glory of God. This kind of information about God and nature is called by theologians and pastors general revelation. It's in contrast with what we can learn about God in Scripture, which we'll come to in just a minute. General revelation is God making general truths about him generally known to all people. And in his sermon on this psalm, the late James Montgomery Boyce points out three truths about general revelation, which we can see in this psalm. Verse 2 shows us that general revelation, the knowledge of God in the world, in creation, shows us that it's continuous. It's day and night pouring out speech. 
And Boyce points out that this word for pouring out comes from a Hebrew concept like a gushing stream. It's an abundant, full, massive, continuous revelation of God. It's not like, uh, I, th- I thought of an example, if, if someone is stranded on a desert island and they're, they're keeping a, a, a fire burning on the beach so that a, a passing ship could see or an airplane could see the smoke, well, that fire is only going to keep going as long as you feed wood into it, right? So that's, that SOS signal is not regular. Or if, if you're sending out a mayday signal on one of those old telegraph machines, Morse code, SOS, SOS, it's not a continuous signal because when that person gets tired or if the wires break down, but God's revelation in creation is continuous. Day after day, week after week, year after year, decade after decade, ever since the world began, whether you believe that was 20 billion years ago or 10,000 years ago, there has never been a single moment where the glory of God in the world has not been shown forth. So it's continuous. It's also abundant. This idea of pouring forth speech in verse 2 suggests that there is an abundance of revelation of God. This is a, this means, I think, this abundance means that you can find lots of examples of it. And I've listed some already, but a a tiny little ant, if you study the the three parts of an insect's body and its six legs and the way that an ant communicates with the others in its hive through different chemicals and so forth. So there's an abundance of revelation, even in an ant, even in the antenna of an ant, even in the, the cells that line the tip of the antenna of the ant in terms of how these creatures communicate. Every single element of nature testifies to the goodness and brings praise to Almighty God. I thought of a, a great white shark. I thought of the currents in the ocean that carry that shark. I thought of how even at this time of year, birds are migrating in ways that scientists still don't fully understand. I thought of the tiniest grain of sand. If you look at a, a little grain of sand under, under a microscope, again, it's, it's shape. It's a very regular shape. There are angles which are predictable. The element silica breaks or fragments or splits in a very predictable way. And you, look, you can look at that and you can measure things based on the angle of a grain of sand. But then I thought from the tiniest grain of sand, of course there's thousands, millions of grain of sand on one New Jersey beach. Every single one is slightly different. But then if you zoom out and you look at not just grains of sand, but on certain nights, maybe on the beach, certain times of the year, you can even see the Milky Way, which is the cluster of stars in which we are located, the planet Earth and our little solar system, our little corner of the universe. So from the tiniest grain of sand to the, to the sweeping arms of the Milky Way with dimensions that I, I can't even describe as a human being. This is an abundance of revelation. It's not hard to see, and it goes all the way down. No matter how far down you go, you can go down to, to electrons and protons and neutrons in the atom, and then the subatomic particles, and then particles that we only theoretically think exist through different accelerator machines that spins particles of matter so fast that we see the traces of these things. It goes, the glory of God goes all the way down. And then it goes all the way up to these black holes, which is the absence of matter. Even a black hole testifies to the glory of God. What might seem at first random or haphazard, this abundance point that I'm making, the more you investigate nature, the more you see that things you thought were irrelevant or not important or did one thing or another thing, and they are relevant and they're quite important. My favorite example of this is when I was getting my biology degree in college in the late 80s, I was taught about junk DNA. Well, that tells you something right there that we think that there's this massive amounts of coding material in the human body, which is, 
you know, not even worth recycling. And now, come to find out, when I was back in the classroom several years ago and teaching again, I opened the books, and lo and behold, junk DNA isn't so junky anymore. So general revelation is continuous, it's abundant, and it's universal. It speaks in every language. It speaks in, in China. It speaks in Australia. It speaks in India. It speaks in Africa, in South America, in Canada. It speaks in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. It speaks on the Pacific Islands. It speaks in the Arctic and in the Antarctic. Everywhere we go. It speaks on the moon. There isn't a place you can go where the, where the revelation of God doesn't speak. Now, I love nature. I love creation. You can tell I was a science teacher. The first time I preached this psalm, I actually spent the whole sermon on this because I love it so much. But we need to hurry on to the second half. Not only the glory of God in the world, but the glory of God in the word. So in verse 7, David transition or moves from praising God's general revelation or his glory in nature to considering the beauty and glory of the word. Having seen the glory in the world, having seen God's signature in the world, he now turns to look at the handiwork of God in the word. And I'm looking here at verses 7 through 11. Now there's six remarkable terms for the Bible or the word generally speaking, the law, and I'm going to use the Hebrew word for law this morning, which is Torah. The law is listed in the first part of 7, that's Torah. Testimony is also listed in verse 7. Precepts is listed in verse 8. Commandments is listed in verse 8. 9 has an interesting one, the fear of the Lord. This isn't technically a phrase for the word, but fear of the Lord is what the word does. So fear of the Lord describes the work of the word, which is an interesting change in the cycle or the chain of descriptors here. And then finally, rules. When I read it to you, I, I translated this as judgments. So rules or judgments there. My, my footnote says just decrees. The law in verse 7 is equivalent perhaps best to what we think of as just the Bible. It's it's the umbrella term, and appropriate, therefore, that it's the first term that's mentioned. Sometimes the law is thought of, or the Torah, as the Ten Commandments. Sometimes the Torah is thought of as the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Torah. But it also has implications or signification for the entire Old Testament, and the perspective of the New Testament writers is that Matthew, through Revelation, the 27 books of the New Testament, are Torah. They're given the same status. They're treated with the same respect. They're given the same instruction. In fact, Jesus himself is a new Moses giving new Torah. That's the essence of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. You should read that. I like how testimonies are paired with Torah because testimony is a story. Do you have a story? If I were to say, hey, Joe, Julie, what's your life about? Tell me your story. And you tell me maybe where you were born and who your parents are and what are some of the experiences you had growing up, where you've lived, different places you've lived, perhaps if you're a child, the school that you go to, teachers that you like, the classes that you like, what you don't like, your hobbies if you're in a sport. This is part of your story, right? If you're older and you're married or you have children, your story begins to take on more dimensions. Well, the story of God is the law, the Torah of God. This is God's story. This is it. I love the story of God as a way to describe the Bible because it gets us out of maybe a mindset, a little bit of a rigid mindset that says, I'm reading the Bible to find out what I need to do. There's, there's definitely that, and I'm going to come to that in a moment, but the Bible, first and foremost, is the testimony of God, which tells us who God is and what He's doing. And we get to know Him 
in specific ways through his testimony. Precepts and commandments in verse 8 are paired up, I think, probably on purpose, because this does get it, I think, what must I do? Agenda literally means things to be done. So verse 8 is the agenda for the godly life. The precepts and the commandments which highlight that which you must obey for the Lord. And I mentioned fear is the effect of the Lord, uh, the effect of the word in verse 9. The fear of the Lord is clean, which means, and this is a complicated verse, so let's see if we can we can open this up. Verse 9 of Psalm 19. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. I think what David is getting at here is, as I look to the story of God, I'm changed. It's transformative. By being exposed to Scripture, mixed with faith, God does a mighty work in my life. And there's a cleansing quality to this new emotional mindset that says, I was running from God, I was fighting God, and now I'm listening to God, serving and obeying God, and that's clean. And then this enduring forever, I think Jesus said, you know, my, my heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So also this attitude of reverence for God and His Word also endures forever. I think it points to the people who fear God will endure forever as well. So I think there's a little hint. I'm going to come to this in just a moment. There's a little hint here in verse 9 of eternal life in the Old Testament. They believed in eternal life, and I think this is suggestive of that. And then judgments, or uh, the so-called rules, is how the ESV translates it are true. God's role as a judge in evaluating your thoughts, your actions. He has the last word. That's what that means. All six of these words about the word point to the fact that God has shown you and me how he wants us to live. God is a God who is to be obeyed, followed, listened to. He's doing work in the world, and it's our both privilege and responsibility to find out what that means. And so in each case, in each of the six cases, it gives a benefit, if you'll notice, from verse 7 to 11, from each of these ways of thinking about Torah or God's Word. So the first benefit, and I'm thinking of this as Torah's tree. I have, I have an outline if some of you have it. Torah's tree, it reminds me like a, a fruit tree with beneficial branches or beneficial fruits. The first benefit of the law is because it's perfect, it brings renewal or revival into our lives. That's a benefit. Here's what I think about that. Jesus said to his disciples, I have food to eat that you do not know about in John 4. And then he said to the tempter in the wilderness, man does not live on bread alone, but what? On every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I think the first part of verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, shows us that apart from God's testimony, apart from God's story, apart from God's word, we're dying. We're starving. And when we partake of the word of God, we're renewed, we're revived. Now, I don't think this is necessarily just daily Bible reading. I personally struggle with daily Bible reading. Some of you may as well. I think it is daily Bible reading. I think there's, a, there's an important discipline to be developed. And if, if you struggle with it, there are some resources that I can give you on how you can get better at daily turning to the Lord in the Scriptures. But this renewal or revival goes way beyond just cracking open your Bible every day or reading the Bible in a year. I think it includes being with other Christians as well and talking about what God is doing in our lives. That's important for renewal. For me, it is. I can read my Bible all day long. And I can still feel lonely and discouraged and downcast. And I need other brothers and sisters in Christ to put their arm around me and say, 
God's at work. He's at work in our lives. He's at work in your life, Phil. That's refreshing. That's reviving. And I also think it's appropriate for me here to emphasize that personal Bible reading, this is my subtle conviction, is not nearly as important as preaching. And you say, well, that makes sense for you to say that. I mean, that's your job. Well, actually, it is my job. The preaching of the Word is more important than your personal Bible reading. Write that down. In fact, I think it's the preaching of the Word that sets the frame for your personal Bible reading. Because you can get into all kinds of head games when you're reading the Bible. But when God speaks to you through His servant, the preacher, the anointed man of God, sinner though he may be, sinner though he is, there's no avoiding it. The thus saith the Lord from the anointed of God is inescapable in a way that personal Bible reading will never be the same. And by the way, watching a sermon on TV is not the same. Because I can look at this camera, I don't know who's on the other side of that camera, but I see you. And on the way out, I may want to shake your hand and say, by the way, how's it going? What'd you think of that message? Or I might look you up this week or send you a text or give you a call. I or one of the other elders who are fellow pastors with me in this congregation. What'd you think of that message? What's God doing in your life? So it brings revival. Because it's trustworthy, it makes simple people wise. That's what the other half of verse 7 says. Making wise the simple. It's sure, it's trustworthy. You need to know this word simple in the Bible is the halfway house between the wise and the fool. And we all come out sort of simple. And this, by the way, the simple is a sophomore. So sophomore is someone who has just enough knowledge but doesn't quite know how to put it yet. So you're a sophomore in college or a sophomore in high school or a sophomore in life. We're all somewhat simple. We're all teetering on, on that razor's edge between foolishness and wisdom. And what's going to nudge us in the right direction? What's going to push us towards wisdom and not foolishness? The fool says in his heart, Psalm 14, there is no God. Saying or living a godless life is the definition of a fool in the Bible. And it's the wisdom of God's testimonies. They're going to keep the simpleton from taking that path towards godlessness. And that's me. And that's you. More could be said there, but I want to go to the third the third benefit here that we get in this Torah tree. Because the Lord's precepts are right, they bring joy. Feeling happy, feeling joyful, the, the emotional side of our lives. Paul said, whatever is true, whatever is right, whatever is good, whatever is noble, whatever is praiseworthy, Philippians 4. I never remember the whole sequence, but... It's worth referencing. Philippians 4.11, I think, is the passage. This beautiful sequence of um, what Aristotle might have said, the good, the true, and the beautiful. These things? How do you know what those things are? How do you know what should bring you joy? Well, I know what I kind of like and what I don't like, kind of like foods, you know, the menu of life. I'm happy here and I'm not happy there. But because the scriptures are true and right, they're an inerrant and infallible guide to our emotions. And I find, maybe you can relate to this, I get happy at the wrong times. Oh, goody, an opportunity to sin. And then I dive in. And I find that I'm sad at the wrong times. Oh, man, I got to read my Bible i got to serve and love my family. i got to do the chores. i got to go to church. i got to preach. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. 
And the, the story of God tells me, no, this is the thing that revives my life. This is the thing that brings me joy. And I'm like, oh, right, right. That's what I meant. Thank you, God, for that mid-course correction. That's what the testimonies and the precepts of the Lord do. They, they, and by the way, when I obey, after the fact, I'm like, I am so glad I did that. I am so glad I followed the Lord's way. And when I disobey, it's like, what was I thinking? I just brought a dump truck of misery and dumped it into my life. Kind of all of it slid right down into my yard. If only I had obeyed. And he continues, it's pure, and so it illuminates. Or I love this one. The commandment of the Lord is pure. It enlightens or illuminates. Jesus said, the pure in heart will see God. And how do we become pure? It's the scriptures which are pure. It's the Torah which is pure. And that takes the fog out of the eyes. There are certain diseases in the eye. As you age, you'll, you'll learn this. They start a, a clouding or clouding over your ability. You can even see it in some eyes or clouded. If you look in someone's eye, it's all clouded. And we have such an amazing country and such advanced technologies that many of these eye conditions can be cleared up, cataracts and so forth. Well, this is the eye surgery that we need is from what this says, the commandment of the Lord. It's clarifying. It's enlightening. In Psalm 119, it says, uh, Thy word is a light unto my feet and a lamp unto my path. I love that verse. Don't you love that? What should I do? Where should I go? Pastor, give me some advice here. Well, let's open the word. Let's get some guidance. Now, keep in mind, the clarity that Scripture gives isn't sort of like, marry this person next week, Wednesday at noon. It's more like, seek to marry or seek to be in covenant with someone who fears God. And trust me with the rest of the details. But you focus on that big picture. It's not necessarily the clarity that we want, but it is, I think, the clarity that we need. I've mentioned the fear of the Lord in verse 9. The judgments, the rules, also in verse 9, are absolutely true, which is why we desire them even more than fine gold, verse 10, or the drippings of the honeycomb. I was trying to imagine just taking a, just a honeycomb and sort of holding it upside down and letting that honey run out of those uh, hexagonal wax, waxy boxes and just the honey's dripping down onto my tongue. Can you picture that? And I, I was like, where's a farmer's market? Get me some honeycomb right now as reading this and preparing for this. The drippings of the honeycomb. Man. And the final... Um, bit about the we looked at the the uh, revelation in the world we've got God's word revelation in the word by them is your servant warned by them is your servant warned what a phrase the servant so David sees himself as a servant of God and that's why it's God's word that is giving him his his marching orders, basically. This is his playbook. So the characters in the Bible, you know, David warns us, but he also inspires us. Don't you love David taking out Goliath? Hiding from Saul. He's got his dagger over Saul's neck, and he's like, no, I'm going to do it God's way. Puts his dagger in, walks away. Oh, he snips off a little corner of his robe. And even then David feels bad. I love David. But then I should be warned by David's bad example too. I'm not warned enough. What characters in the Bible warn you? The story. What do you think about Noah? What, what do you love about the creation story? We're looking, looking at creation here. How is that helping you think about your life as you read the beauty of God and creation. Well, there's warning in, at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Which reminds me, before I move on to the third point, that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, one theologian thinks that we have actually 
in these six features of the Word, we have a commentary on the, on the forbidden fruit. I think he's right. Take a look. Even though the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was good for food in Genesis 3.6, our passage tells us that eating the forbidden fruit brings death, but the Torah brings life. Psalm 19, verse 7, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Eve thought the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would make her wise in Genesis 3.5, but our text says that the simpleton, which Eve was, and Adam, the simpleton gains wisdom from God's story, God's testimony. Satan said Adam and Eve would not surely die if they ate of the tree, but God's Torah is the only thing that can and will endure forever, and those who follow it will also have eternal life. Verse 9 of Psalm 19. And Satan promises that with the forbidden tree, that their eyes were going to be opened and that they would be like God, knowing good and evil. But God promises that only His law can enlighten the eyes and that only the pure in heart will see, know, and experience God. I think what David is doing here is he's saying there's two ways to live in this beautiful creation. You can live according to your own ideas, and by the way, we see a great example of that in Genesis 3. Or you can live by my testimony, my Torah, my precepts, my commandments, says the Lord, and you will live. Which brings me to my third point, which is not only the glory of God in the world and in the Word, but the glory of God in the Gospel. Verses 12, 13, and 14. Who can discern his errors? The his here in verse 12 is your errors and mine. Who can discern our own errors? Who can really know how you've sinned against God? The answer is rhetorical. The answer is no one. And so he prays, Declare me innocent from hidden faults. This is like Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any hidden way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. We have been so broken and bent by our sin that we don't even know when we're sinning. And so we, we are right to follow the biblical example and pray for forgiveness for unknown sins. Job prayed perhaps that his children might have sinned and he offered sacrifices for them. And we can do the same for ourselves and for our loved ones. Lord, forgive me of my sins, even the sins that I don't know about. Now, if I'm honest with you, I don't spend a whole lot of time praying for my unknown sins. The Scripture tells me that I probably should, but I find myself fairly well occupied with the sins that I know about. It keeps me kind of busy. And so the second part of this is keep back your servants also from presumptuous sins. Actually, the word here is pride. One word. So the translators of our Bibles have added presumptuous because it's very proud to presume upon God and go ahead and sin knowingly. But it could also be presumptuous or proud people. So I think we have here in verse 13 a prayer that God would keep us from prideful ways of willfully, wantonly, knowingly transgressing the law and God would keep us from such people who would do that as well and perhaps lead us into those things. Let them not have dominion over me. The, the old preachers and pastor talked about ruling sins or dominating sins. Sins of uh, today we'd probably talk about addictions, compulsions. How do you do with your dominating impulses? I don't do well. I struggle with dominating impulses. It's like the, you know, the doctor's office, the so-called reflex, that little rubber mallet when he strikes the right place on the kneecap, your knee goes up. And sometimes if you hit your elbow, there's, a, there's like an electric surge that goes down to the tips of your fingers. Sin and temptation is like that. We become habituated to certain ways of thinking and acting which 
constantly, regularly go against the Lord. And this is an invitation to pray, Lord, keep me from these dominating sins. It's also hope for addicts that we can find freedom, that the, the dominion, the power, the ruling power of sin can be broken in our lives. And look how he ends. Oh, then he says, I'll be blameless and innocent of great transgression. These are the biggies. Thou shalt not uh, commit adultery. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not covet. And I think the other ones too. All Ten Commandments. Keep, keep us blameless. Not that we're going to be sin-free, but we're going to walk in righteousness before the Lord. And then he ends with the prayer. This prayer in verse 14, I think, as he scanned the heavens and scanned the word, he's, a, he's enamored of the glory of God and creation. He's amazed at the glory of God in scripture. And then he sort of looks to himself and he's humbled. One commentator said we go from the macrocosm to the microcosm. We go from the big book of the world to the little book of the word. And the little book is more important than the big book. And then he goes to his heart. And this is where we need the gospel. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. David and all of us who pray or sing this psalm recognize that unless God redeems us and forms the very ground under our feet, we will perish. We will not endure forever, but we will perish under his judgment. The Redeemer God is the rock. And the God who is the rock is also our Redeemer. And he wants to be cleansed both in the way that he speaks and the way that he lives. His meditations and his words. Well, I don't have time this morning to cover other topics that this, that this passage raises, but I'd love if you have questions, for instance, on the inerrancy of Scripture or uh, errors in the Bible, if that's something that you struggle with. I've spent a great deal of time working through these kinds of questions in my own mind to satisfy my own heart. I, I haven't fully arrived. I, st I still have questions. I want to encourage you to pursue those questions. But this psalm really does show us that we can trust the Word. That's what it shows us. In conclusion, I want to uh, end with an illustration. Years ago, I went camping with my dad in the Rocky Mountain National Park. And at a certain place in the park, there was a lake. And when we woke up, it's like, you know, you got to wake up early in the mountains because it gets cold and it's light early. And that lake, to say that it was a mirror would be an understatement. It was as smooth as the smoothest pane of glass. And because we were in a valley, there were mountains that were kind of poking up all around the lake with the iconic uh, pine trees and, and cedar trees and such. And that sky was perfectly reflected in that lake. I mean, if you had turned me upside down, I would have swore that the lake was the real thing and the sky was the reflection if blood wasn't running to my head. You know what I'm saying? But here's the thing. Some of those mountains in this, in this mountain range are glaciers. This, even the sky was reflected in the glaciers. You could see the sky in the mountains. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I, I tried to come up with the most vivid memory I have of reflected glory because what we see here is that the glory of God is reflected in that scene of creation but it's even more clear it's 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 that mountain lake in the word it's perfectly reflected and clear in his word so I want to encourage you as we leave this morning slow down and enjoy the world that God has made as I'm traveling to and fro I don't know what's going on with these South Jersey roads are we getting ready for Christmas? But I mean, people are fast and they are mean. And I don't mean any of you. It's all of them that are fast and mean. <laughs> Slow down. Build some time into your schedule. Make sure that you're outside. Bundle up. 
Enjoy time with your friends or your family. I know you have tests that are due. I know you have assignments that are due. I know you have projects that are due. We're moving too fast. And God has given us these testimonies of himself, not that they would just take them for granted, but we would soak them in. But I think we also need to recognize that in order to truly appreciate the world God has made, we need a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So I want to invite you, if you haven't, to pray to receive Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. He's the one who said, my words, he had the audacity to say, my words will never pass away. He himself is the living embodiment of Psalm 19, verse 9. The fear of the Lord is clean enduring forever. And the one who knows Jesus Christ will see God because Jesus himself is the living God. I know that when I put my faith in Christ decades ago now, it changed my life. My sin didn't go away and I'm still struggling with dominating sins. But he's made all the difference. And now I have a relationship with the creator who made the world. And I know him and he knows me. And while I'm not perfect, he is helping me that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart will be acceptable in his sight, little by little every day. That's the hope of the the Christian. That's the hope of the gospel. And it's the hope I want you to have this morning as we close. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you that you are merciful and kind to reveal yourself in such amazing ways in the world and an even clearer picture in the word. And if it's possible, an even clearer, clearer, clearer picture in the gospel. Because in the gospel we discover that the God of the word is a redeemer and a rock that we can trust. I pray, Lord, that no one would leave this morning without knowing the confident hope and knowledge that God is a rock. And if there is someone as myself who is a weary Christian struggling with sin and difficulty and hardship and trial. Lord, I pray we would be refreshed and revived by the word this morning, that you would enlighten our eyes, that you'd give us hope and joy, and you'd comfort us knowing that you are righteous and true altogether in spite of everything that's going on in our lives and in the world. These things, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the church house located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.